Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Schmidt. I'm here with Rachel Rose. We're at Bryn Mawr Vineyards in Salem. It's June 29th, 2020. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for setting this up for us today. Uh, first question, most important question is why wine? Why wine? Um, because food, <laughs> because uh, nature, and uh, because science, I will say. What point, at what point did you want to become part of the industry? Well, um, I think I've, I've often heard it referenced when you get the wine bug. Um, I was studying um, molecular cellular developmental biology at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And um, I for the probably you know, the first time in my life, I, I had a little disposable income. That was when like, this was uh, in the 2000s. So I graduated uh, in 2001 with my bachelor's of science. And um, so like the Food Network was really taking off in its early days, like authentic cooking. Um, and so I just started to discover this, this world of the culinary arts. And with that, I, I, I noticed wine kept showing up. And so um, I started, oh, okay. I, I, had, I had had wine. Um, I didn't come from a wine drinking family per se, but I had had exposure to wine over the years. Um, and and so I uh, I just started buying wine at like the local wine shop when I'd go in to, to buy ingredients for whatever culinary endeavor I was going to do over the weekend, and I was just like wow there's really really something to this and so I um, I decided that I wanted to spend my free weekends working in wine somehow and so at that time because i was living in california in santa cruz i went to go work for bonnie dune which was really amazing in in retrospect so i was working in the tasting room um, i never met randall graham um, and i was just blown away by this focus on varietals and and all these obscure varietals and this whole focus on grape growing um, and then and then start talking about how wines were made and um, and I remember very distinctly at one point we were getting ready to like release all these new wines in the tasting room and so someone I don't remember who he was came from the cellar to tell us about this these new vintages of wine and he started talking about like throwing st stones in the tank and, and, and then he started talking about like yeast and then, and then maybe even bacteria. And at that time, of course, I was deeply immersed in my cellular molecular studies. Um, I was actually working for a biotechnology firm at that time. I, I, was, I was pretty sure I was gonna be in a research and development in, in, in a laboratory for like the rest of my life. Um, 
And I went, like, wait a minute. I thought this was just uh, uh, you know, side note to food. Wait a minute, I mean there's like yeast and bacteria and fermentation kinetics. And oh yeah, I've been learning about this grape growing as well. And, and it just kind of just blew my mind and also made me go, wow, this is something I can, I can, under, I can really get behind. I, can, I, I, I really get this, or, or at least it piqued my interest in something where like, maybe I could do that. Um, and so I, I stayed working my full-time biotechnology job at that time, which I loved. It was really, really quite phenomenal work. It was mostly cancer research. I worked in uh, immunodetection, so I worked with all these fluorescent colored antibodies. And it was, it was my team. I met some really, really wonderful people during that time of my life who, who probably had a bit to do with my direction. Um, and, and so I said, well, okay, let's take this, this wine thing a little bit further. So I did a little bit of research and of course, like UC Davis, um, I didn't want to just pack up and go off to winemaking school or anything as radical as that. Um, so I took some online classes with some proctored exams. Um, like, I think I still have the VHS tapes um, and Again, it was just like a supernova where I, f I began to understand that there was not only science and grape growing, there was history and geology and geography and, and this whole world, this culinary aspect where you were marrying food and wine together in pairs. And I think at that point, I was pretty much feeling like this is a great big world out there and I don't know exactly which avenue in wine I'd like to take, but wow, this is, this is something special. And um, at that time, um, so like I had mentioned, I, I had graduated in 2001 and during my time in school, I was already working for the biotechnology firm. So I just kind of stepped right in. I had a full-time position, salaried benefits, the whole thing. I think, I, I don't know, I think I got paid like 50,000, know, 50 grand right out of college or something like that. Um, easy street for a recent grad and, um, and and I had just a huge upwelling in my life. Uh, we, uh, I had a lot of uh, emotional things going on. We had a, a sudden and tragic loss in my family about that time. And I, just a huge change in myself. And I, I knew that being in the laboratory setting as great as it was, it probably would not be the thing that I, that would make me fulfilled in life. And, and so, um, I, I, I remember I went home for Christmas and I was sitting in front of the fireplace and I, and I was talking to my family and, um, I said, you know what, I'm going to go to school for grape growing and winemaking. And my grandma was like, what? <laughs> you, you just put yourself through school. You've got this great job. Like, what are you thinking? Like, I don't know what I'm thinking, but I can just tell you that this is something really, really special and I'd like to do it. And she goes, okay, well, 
where are you going to go? I said, Australia. <laughs> I, I, I think she just shook her head and walked out the door. Um, because actually my, gra my grandmother grew up in Utah and so she has definitely never really has had wine experience and still I don't really know if she still completely understands. But um, so I, I decided in um, 2004 to move to, well, I decided to apply. So I, in my mind, I naturally thought, well, if I want to make wine, I need to know how to grow grapes. So at that point, I was looking at all the programs. Um, UC Davis at that time didn't really have uh, as great of a winemaking facility as they do now. They didn't, it was very uh, research-based. Of course, it's research-based, but uh, it wasn't that kind of fully hands-on winemaking experience that I really wanted. And since I was going for uh, viticulture, I had begun to read about the different programs. And something that really stood out to me is that if I went to Australia, specifically South Australia, so I ended up going to the University of Adelaide, um, Dr. Peter Dry would be my professor. And I, you know, I kept noticing that he, he had written a lot of books. <laughs> so that was probably a really great thing. And I didn't really know enough at that time to just like really understand. I had no experience grape growing. I hadn't been around a single vineyard in my life. Um, but it seemed like a pretty good idea. And the, I knew the class sizes would be small as well. I thought that was a good thing. Um, and actually, I was applying to UC Davis. So my original plan was to go to Australia, live in South Australia, where I could be close to like a maritime climate. I could also be next to the, the hot uh, Barossa Valley. I could if, do some cool climate work in, uh, well, it would be the Adelaide Hills and the Mornington Peninsula. Because really, I didn't know where I was going to live in the world. I didn't know if I was going to be a winemaker, grape grower, wine seller. Uh, research, I kind of thought I might go into research. I was just like, okay, let's start with the grapes. That makes the most sense. That's how, that's where it all starts. Let's, let's start there. And once I got to Australia, it became so apparent how much more hands-on that whole industry was and how much more was expected of me. And I can say that, um, it was, it was quite a challenge um, walking into a program and, and with no experience at all. And I didn't really realize it, but oh, Dr. Dry was really tough. He was really tough. And I didn't realize that until I got into the enology program, but the, everyone's viticulture classes were by far the most challenging. He was pretty brutal, but it was great. and. Um, our class was very small, so I went there for a, a postgraduate diploma, and um, and it was all about research. And one of the things that I think has was seminal, perhaps, in the way that I approach or have approached winemaking and grape growing really did come from my, my, my days in the scientific field and then coming to wine grape growing from a very technical place where you didn't really just try things. You researched them, you proved your theory, and then you went about it in a um, linear fashion. 
um, for better or for worse. Um, and and but it, but it was something. It was those are my crutches because they are tried and true. And I I just a little bit more of my comfort zone. So with that, I, I, I was in Australia. Um, at that time, this, this, may, this may sound very odd, but um, I was in a place in my life where I, I had had some, as I alluded to, some a, a really tragic uh, death that happened in the family. And at that time, my friends and family were in the kind of like rock and roll scene. And I wanted a break from everything. I wanted to go to another country um, and just study like nature and grape growing. And I don't even think I was drinking wine at the time, which is like not the best way to make friends going to winemaking school. Um, but I was there on a mission and I was paying for it myself. And I was just determined and and I realized I was going out on a limb, and so I took it really, really seriously. Um, and and I think I needed to really because it was quite challenging. Um, and so I, I I was enjoying my time there. I uh, I had started working for a small producer again on my weekends, uh, Tilbrook Estate, which sadly his vineyards were lost in the recent bushfires, or at least heavily damaged. And um, I used to go through the vineyard and just prune all by myself. He let me have his premium Pinot Noir blocks. And I just remember just standing in the middle of a vineyard being like, wow, I have it within myself to, to make or break this. And that was intimidating, but it was also kind of the challenge that I, I wanted. And, um, and so, the more I was there, the more I really began to appreciate the hands-on approach. And the more I kept looking at going back to UC Davis, I was like, yeah, you know, the American dollar is really strong right now. And I got phenomenal crossover credits because I had come from such a strong scientific background. And I would get, since I did viticulture, that would pretty much be a lot, most of my prereqs for the enology degree. So at the end, I said, you know what? I'm just going to stay put and I'm going to I'm going to get my master's degree in enology while I'm here. My family was really 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 uh, supportive as much as they could be, but I know they were really sad and um, the, my boyfriend who I had met right before I left for grad school was also very distraught that I decided to stay in Australia. Um, but we made up for that later. He's now my husband and, and we have two little boys. So <laughs> we made good in the end by that. And um, so, so I stayed and during the different uh, spring break, so like over Easter, I was working vintage. So while I was still in school, I worked for Weera Weera in McLarenville. Um, and then I, um, of, oh, I'm sorry. And then, of course, with the, the university itself, we had like little versions of, of pretty much everything that was available in the industry. So we had like little tiny little roto presses or roto fermenters and uh, different kinds of presses. And 
The program really stressed how to become a, um, a like a stylistic winemaker, I would say. And it's something that I, I think was very valuable. So for example, you would be given an allotment of grapes and you would know you were getting those grapes. So you would write a proposal about how, how you wanted to make that style. So it required you doing some research, figuring out what style you wanted to make. And then you were critiqued at the end based on if you made that wine to that style. So like, let's say you were just making a Chardonnay and you wanted to make like a lean, austere Chardonnay. Well, at the end of the day, your final grade would not be based on like how great the wine tasted exactly. It would be a little bit more like, did you make the style that you set out to be? So it really was, um, teaching us how to be wine professionals from a production standpoint. Because they're like, you're not going to get hired to a 100 metric ton winemaking winery and say you're going to make one thing and then end up with a totally different product at the end. So it was definitely a much um, more directed education. And there was a lot of research going on, but I think we were really, really taught how to like just <laughs> get from point A to point B. And if you wanted to experiment, then you did research. We weren't allowed to do native yeast fermentations in our winery. So I, I think that all of this was really, really great and obviously formative and gave me the, the tools to be able to set out and, and, and achieve specific goals. Um, but uh, I think that I am at a stage in my winemaking uh, arc in that I'm really looking to do more of the unknown. And I think that even if you don't know all the answers, then it's still really important to explore, experiment. And um, my own trajectory with Bryn Mawr has been just a perfect example. We, we, we made, I made wine outside for seven years and I stored the wine in a basement with drains. Um, so the winery blew away because it was a tent. I mean, it was a, it has, it has been a just struggle to physically make the wine and to make a clean wine. And I feel like if I wouldn't have had that very kind of strict regimented winemaking education, I probably wouldn't have been able to pull it off. And so now, um, and even some of my later vintages in the basement, I, I've been able to start really opening up and, and going, wow, I do have temperature control. This, 
I can, I can start exploring some different avenues. A lot of the things that I was doing winemaking-wise were very reactionary. I had no temperature control. It, as you know, the Van Duzers come through at night and all my ferments would get so, so cold and we're a late ripening site. So 2010 vintage, 2011 vintage, we weren't harvesting until October. And that's my birthday, and so I remember. And um, it's, it was physically just very difficult. It was a constant fight just to make wine. <laughs> we had like one pump, we had one plug, we'd have to unplug, I did have a little bit of temperature control there at the end, but we'd have to unplug the glycol machine to run the pump to do pump overs. So a lot of the cat management that I did was totally based on the fact, well, I didn't have a pump to do pump overs. So it was very rustic and I've been, t I've been tasting through some of those older vintages and despite all that, like, some of those wines are just absolutely gorgeous. And I'm really proud of that because it was, it's really hard. I was, I was in it. So it, it was um, just kind of fight or flight response. So it's only looking back, I go, oh, no wonder I was so exhausted. No wonder. I mean, we would, I would drive the tractor to get the fruit to the winery, get out of the tractor, hop on the forklift, dump the fruit. I mean, so of course, I'm just talking about the winemaking aspects, but of course, from a grape growing perspective, we have been busy. Um, 2010 is when we put our first vines in. Yes, I started New Year's Day to 2010, so how I got vines planted the spring of 2010, I still don't even know. Um, I tend to be tenacious and a little driven at times, so I got it done. Um, and then we planted again in pretty big planting for us in 2012, and it's just so nice to finally see those vines uh, maturing and then we just finished another big establishment this fall for the rest of the property I, I don't think I can plan any more here okay maybe a row or two but um, it has been constant constant growth and development and I feel incredibly fortunate that I met the Lowers and they really just um, trusted me enough to guide these incredible decisions for the business. And, and with that, um, I've always taken it very seriously because I realized that this isn't a, a giant corporation. So that, that, but it's an incredible experience. This has been such like a wild ride. It feels like three different careers um, to go from making wine in a basement, which is not at all what I thought I would be doing. I had worked in million, million dollar facilities all over the world. And I know a lot of my friends and colleagues were just like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, but I can tell it's really great. So, <laughs> get a little water. Mm. So take me through how you got from Australia to here. 
Um, so, how I got here? Well, we'll go back to that boyfriend. He had a little bit to do with it. <laughs> so after I graduated, uh, I went to work for Yalumba in South Australia. I was working in the white wine cellar. I knew at that point I was really interested in white wines. I was chasing Viognier at that time. And um, he and I had just kept this wonderful relationship going and, and we had uh, rendezvoused in Thailand and we traveled to Nicaragua and then I came back and we went to Colorado and um, we, there was just always something there. And when I went to work the vintage at Yalumba, um, and it was kind of towards the tail end. I thought, okay, I, I really, really, really think cool climate wines are my thing. I, I was enamored with the Pusey Vale Riesling. I loved my experience with the Adelaide Hills and the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir there. I specifically remember a, a Nepenthe wine that was just like nothing I'd ever had at the at that point. And um, so I said, okay, I'm moving to France. Yes, that's, that's where I'll go. That's the obvious choice. So I, I called up my, my then boyfriend. I said, okay, so I'm, I think I'm ready to leave Australia. And he was like, great, I don't really want to move there. I said, but I'm moving to France. And he goes, okay, well, I lived in France when I was a kid. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, yeah, it was great. My, my, my band's almost done with tour, so that might work out okay. I said, okay, well, let's meet in France. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going, well, I have to go to Burgundy, right? And so then the more I started looking into it and I started reading these like laundry lists of all the things one had to do to get a a, a a real visa that essentially had to prove that you could do your job better than a native French winemaker man French I was like oh I don't stand a chance like you oh oh you can't actually just go there and do that oh it's one of those kind of places okay hmm well, Oregon, <laughs> New World Burgundy. The visa's easier to get, you know, I can just go home. And, um, and so after a few months of really kind of being sad that maybe Burgundy work worked out, I said, okay, well, how about, I think I'm gonna go back to Oregon. I think I'm gonna go to Oregon. I think I'm gonna come back and I think we're gonna, I'm gonna go to Oregon. He goes, okay, I'll come with you. And his family was uh, from originally from Eastern Oregon, and um, and so we borrowed his band's van, their tour van, <laughs> and I had my like Honda Civic that I that was a friend of mine's in high school that I finally just sold like five years ago, and I had like the Honda Civic, and we had like one of his bandmates and the, and the and the tour van, and we packed as much stuff. I mean, I had already gotten rid of most of everything because I was like starting over again in another country. Um, he had a lot of stuff. Um, and we just drove here, and I 
I, oh, I will say, um, I did secure a position at Ponzi Vineyards. So we moved to Oregon in 2008. And since I had already been through quite a few vintages, I'm like, okay, you have to work a vintage. You, you have to see what harvest is all about. Um, not only so you understand what it is I'm doing, but when you don't see me for months on end and you don't understand why all I want to do is walk in, eat some cereal and like <laughs> drink a beer and fall on the couch, you don't understand. You won't understand unless you come do this. So he actually got a job at 12th and Maple, which was his only harvest job outside of helping out with Bryn Mawr. And, um, so I went to work for the Ponzi family. Um, it was wonderful. It was great. It was pivotal. And the family, um, they were so welcoming and it was like nothing I had ever experienced. When we, we got to live in their like 1970s, I think they had just purchased it. This was up in the Shehala Mountains. It was, gonna, it was the intern house, I think. I'm sure it's remodeled now, but it was like these like brown, orange carpets and it was just so, just shagrific. But there were huge wraparound windows and a deck and just looking right at Mount Hood. And I'd wake up really early in the mornings and watch the sunrise so I could go out in the vineyard and do whatever it was we were doing. And, and, and uh, Nancy Ponzi had made a little gift basket for us with like a visitor's guide and a little thing of blueberries and some beer and some wine. And I just remember thinking, this is just, a, this is just heavenly. This, if this isn't a calling, then what is? And, and Louisa really, really gave me a great, quite a few opportunities working there. So I was there for a good, a good while. Um, and then it was kind of off to my next adventure. And so I, I, I think at one point I like came home to my still then boyfriend and said, okay, vintage is, is over here. I'm, I'm ready to go to New Zealand. <laughs> and he's like, I don't want to work another harvest. And so he was going to stay there. And I was like, well, this is kind of what I do. I got to get like a few harvests in a year. And so I at that point, I think he realized that he had to propose in order to like keep me around. And so I think it was a few weeks before I left for New Zealand to go work at Cloudy Bay, he proposed. So he sent me off with a ring. <laughs> and um, yeah, so then, then I went to work at uh, Cloudy Bay. So lots of Sauvignon Blanc and more Pinot Noir. Um, but one of my really, really great friends who I studied viticulture with was working at Saracen, so a biodynamic outfit. So I would, uh, I would go over there and, and, and help stir in the mornings. And, and, and she was in charge of the animal husbandry program. And so um, we, I got to see that um, as much as one can during harvest and just kind of watch her, her path and where she went and where I was going. And that was always great. And, um, and then after New Zealand, I, I came back for an extended vintage at Penarash. And so that was uh, all 2009. And so I was there again, like w well before harvest. 
and I was kind of there like a super intern. They had one, at that point, they would hire one additional person to come on to join the, the assistant winemaker and the, I don't think I have a cellar master at that point, um, and just help with the harvest prep. And that was great because I got to see, since Lynn worked with so many different vineyards, I got to just really see all the different AVAs because I was out doing the vineyard sampling and helping with the, the counts and everything and kicking the dirt and feeling the wind and seeing, and then getting to see how the wines were made and, and how those final wines were, they're, I mean, essentially their characteristics. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to participate in, in the tastings and, and really got to see how these vineyards that she had worked with for so long too. So there was not only getting to see all these new vineyards, but like an, a historical context of, oh, well, this, this is what happened last year and this is how this wine turned out. And that was really eye-opening. I, um, I was really drawn to the verve of the Eola Amity Hills. I, I, I liked the dark fruits, I liked the acid, I liked the structure, I liked that it was just a little bit more like unnerved, I guess. It just, I really, really was, I loved the energy. And I think at that time too, we were tasting, we were, we were buying a lot of Stevenson Berry wines and my favorites were from Temperance Hill. So back then, we definitely were drinking the 2006 Temperance Hills and then the 2007s, 8s, and that was just our go-to. So that really opened me up to Temperance Hill specifically. And I was pretty much set on, if I was gonna stay in Oregon, I wanted to work in the Old Amity Hills. And I'm, it's so funny, I, I think, it's hard to reflect on yourself, but I think my character is like, I have a lot of energy. I have a lot of energy. I purposely did not have any coffee today. I can, I, I, I can just be like a vibrating ball of energy. And, and, I, and I have a lot going on in my mind. And of course, this job is so multifaceted that it kind of feeds into that. And so I can be kind of like, energetic and all over the place. Um, but then when you really, really get to know me, um, almost all of my decision-making is deeply considered and calculated. And, and when I get an idea in my head that I wanna do something, um, it's really hard to shake that. And so that's just kind of my character. And so I said, okay, Eola Amity Hills, I don't know how, <laughs> but, this is how it's gonna happen, right? And so I had just come off of working for Lynn Pinarash and I didn't know what I was gonna do. Um, I didn't really have anything lined up. At that point, my then fiance was like, okay, can you please stay in Oregon? I don't really wanna travel a lot. I, I mean, he liked travel, but he's an artist and a musician and really kind of wanted to start getting together with like a band and, and just kind of having, he wanted a life too. Um, and he wanted me to be a part of it, not like a flying winemaker. So I was like, okay, that's, that's out of the picture. Um, and I suppose like any like industrious ex-college student, I started just like 
poach, poaching the job ads through Chemeketa and, and looking at all these college sites to get like a beat on what was going on. I mean, that's how I got jobs in college. And so like, I don't know if I actually physically went to the campus and was like taking pictures or grabbing tabs, but I don't know. I, I came across this ad for a house on a vineyard to, I don't, I mean, it was probably just like a simple paragraph that said like, come live on a vineyard and, and live for free and, and help tend the vines. I was like, great. I don't really want to live in Newburgh anymore. We, we basically lived in the backyard of the Allison, watching the Allison go up. So that was a trip. And I said, okay, well, maybe we can do this. I want to be close to the vines. I thought I was going to go work for a really big winery um, because that's like what I had trained to do. <laughs> and I said, well, but I still really want to be connected with the vines. I still really want to be connected with the vines. So I've got to figure out a way to get to the vines. So, oh, great. We'll go live on a site. I'll do help with the little vineyard on the weekends while I go off and be an assistant winemaker somewhere else. And um, what I didn't know was that the previous owner of this property was selling and he had passed my resume, which I sent to John and Kathy Lauer, who were in the middle of purchasing this property. And so um, when I got a call back, it wasn't it wasn't from, his name is David Lloyd-Jones. It wasn't David Lloyd-Jones. It was this, this John Lauer fellow. And, um, and so I think he invited me to come out to the property. They were still living in San Diego at that time. And I remember driving my little white Honda Civic up the road, kind of looking for this place. And I was like, oh, where am I going? Temperance Hill. That's Temperance Hill. That's Temperance Hill right there. And then like looking over and seeing like all these like sheep and roosters and like the mobile, there's a big ugly lime kind of green mobile home and, and all these broken down fences and stuff. And I'm like, okay, Timberdale's Hill. Hill's right across the street. Okay. So I get down and, and we drive, drive down the driveway. It was wooded back then and, and, and drive up to this like house in this basement and there were these Tibetan prayer flags hanging in the little eaves. So I was like, okay, you know, there's there's something there's definitely something going on here and 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 at that point uh, out comes John and out comes David and I started started to chat about them both, kinda of looking around, going, Wow, okay, this is really a basement. Um <clears throat> but I think what I saw in John and Kathy's vision was that they didn't want to make wine in a basement forever and that they really had some, uh, they had an adventurous spirit. Um, they were willing to do things and try things. And after we had been down in the winery at that point, we were walking and we went through the vineyard and he's like, well, we're, we're buying this property and, and we've bought it and I would really like to get some more vines in the ground as soon as we can. And I'm like, okay, okay, like how soon? He's like, oh, like as soon as possible. When does that happen? <laughs> I'm like, 
And I'm thinking everything I had learned was site selection. You spent months doing site selection and going, okay, um, normally we'd have ordered the vines like a year ago. I don't know really anything about this vineyard at all, but sure, let's do it. I can extend these rows here. There were, um, at that time, all these like rotten walnut trees and, and cherry trees at the front. So right when you drive in, that's now David's Block. It's Pinot Noir, or excuse me, it's Chardonnay and uh, Pinot Blanc. And I'm like, well, this area would be easy to clear. And so it was just instantly like, let's, let's do stuff. And I, <laughs> we, we went out to dinner or we, we met for lunch at, at, a, at a restaurant, La Rambla, in McMinnville. And I just really, really was struck with this, like the energy he had and how he really, they wanted to just build something and they didn't know what exactly. And they didn't really know how exactly. And I just said, you know, Tempertel. Um, and what a great experience. I've studied viticulture. I've studied winemaking. I've worked all around the world. And I know that this kind of opportunity doesn't just happen overnight. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity to help grow something from the ground up, a chance to practice everything that I've learned and establish vineyards that will be here for longer than I live. I mean, how, how great is that? And, um, and then to just, uh, there wasn't really a wine program. I mean, there kind of was, but not really. And just to develop and, and try to develop a, a house style and really just, just take something that had a, obviously a lot of love. It's a very almost magical site and, and to really build growth and, and to build something was just really remarkable. And that, that struck me from the beginning and that's why I decided to get going on this project is because it wasn't about being stagnant and it wasn't about being told exactly what to do or how to do it. It was just a just wonderful opportunity and I, and I saw that right away. And, um, and now this is my 10th vintage. Amazing. Yeah. What did they see in you? Why do you think they were attracted to you as a winemaker? Whew. I mean, of course, I don't completely know. I, I, think, I think there were some um, maybe like basic facts, like I had experience. <laughs> I had some degrees. So in theory, I knew what I was doing. Um, I think, though, something that maybe I don't know if they knew when they first met me or maybe six months or a year into the job is that even if you know what you're going to do or how to do it, it still takes grit and tenacity and determination and just, you know, the ball of energy that I can be to actually get things done. You can talk about things all day long, but I mean, I have been on the ground grape grower. 
I calibrated the sprayers. I led the picking, I, I led the team all year. I pruned the vines myself. I used to set pace. Um, I was, I've been doing it all. And then in addition to that, um, I've always found it like almost like my ethical duty to like make sure that my decisions make financial sense. It's about me too and, and kind of sitting back, I think, oh, you know, has that really served me that well as a creative winemaker? I don't really know, but it has served us well for, for not making um, just flippant decisions and, and not sinking the ship before it even got afloat. And so when I, when I look back and I look around and I see what we physically built, I can, I can feel good about being uh, pretty conservative <laughs> with, with some of the early decisions to just really get us to, the, to, the, to a place where we are now. Um, now it's time to just let loose. <laughs> so um, yeah. I don't know exactly what they saw, but it's been it's been a really, really wonderful experience working for them and um, and and really, I mean, we're we're kind of like family at this point. I lived on site for five years. They they've watched the growth of my my two young sons. I mean, I my my little boy was born and raised on the site, and um, who's now all of five and my littlest one just turned three over the weekend and so they've it's 10 years um we've we've been a part of uh each other's lives through this business and um yeah it's been quite an adventure mm. you mentioned the site and, and being kind of a magical site i think was the word you used tell me what is what is magical about the site and tell me about developing it from what it was to what it is now, on the, specifically the vineyard side? Oh. Um, well, living in a place really helps you get a sense of it. And um, I think the temperature shifts that we get through the wind and the, the higher elevation, so those, those temperature snaps bring energy to the environment. Um, just on a, like a, a, a human level, you're nice, warm, and it's sunset, and then all of a sudden a cold breeze comes through and you've got the goosebumps. And so um, it's, it's energetic in that way. And, um, I, I think that the, um, it's a challenging site, right? We have a lot of rocks. I mean, our, nobody lets us borrow equipment anymore. I mean, we break everything. We, we just brought a new mower on Friday. I mean, we go through these things like, oh, anyways. So it's, it's a very challenging site. And because of the rocks, it's also a very challenging site because we have very little topsoil. And so we really, I work very, very hard at making sure that we've got great organic matter in the soil and um, humates and great water holding capacity because the site is prone to drought stress. 
And um, so I think it's probably like most things where if, if something's challenging and you work hard at them, you love it even more. So I think it's almost just like the, the challenge of it all is what makes it so magical. I mean, I suppose you could just throw in the towel and walk away, but then it's like, you don't you get what you take and, and you, you get back what you give and so I think that's part of what makes it so magical for me um, I love the trees the the soil type even just being that like rich red color I mean it's beautiful it's just stimulating with the climate and it's visually stunning the fact that you can just see like like you're a bird and you can just look out at the whether or not it's to Jefferson in the morning or to the west and watch the sun go down. Um, just visually, it's a visually stunning place. It's, 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 a, it's a temperature um, stimulating sight. Um, and when you walk on the ground, you feel the rocks under your feet. And so it's just, it's not a boring place, and maybe it's just those dynamics that that may, may you know maybe it's actually like all of these things I'm saying make you pay attention. Their their senses, right? I guess all I'm doing is talking about senses, and so maybe it's just a sight that piques your senses and makes you pay attention. And the more you pay attention, the more you appreciate something. Uh, that's like classic wine, right? The more you appreciate it, the more you hedonistically enjoy it. Um, and I, I think too, my, my own character, I, I've always had an affinity for the natural world. Um, I had a quite unique upbringing for the early part of my childhood. I, I, I was raised in the middle of a forest by like my hippie grandparents. We had no electricity. Um, it was like Stanislaw National Forest in the foothills of California. We had vegetable gardens, we had flower gardens, we had um, animals. Um, I, was, I was an only child for 18 years. Um, and I grew up in nature in a real way. And it wasn't until we moved to town in fourth grade or so, so a really, really uh, formative, formative years that I was just really kind of just like a, a wild mountain girl. And I think that's in my DNA. And I think I am drawn to places that bring out probably that kind of more, um, um, uh, emotionally intelligent and intuitive part of my being that helps me counterbalance my like sometimes boring um, mathematical calculated side. Um, I, I, as I've developed, helped develop this business, I've definitely been noticing my own tendencies of being quite duplicitous in that. So in Pinot Noir, we were looking at planting more Chardonnay, um, but we also wanted to do some things that were different. And so getting back to my site selection roots, uh, Dr. Dry would be proud. Um, I got out my Gladstones. I looked at the different maturity groups. I did, uh, kind of, uh, 
I calculated based on the elevation, the soil type and the aspects, how many growing degree days we could get off of this site. Because of course I had come off like the 2010 vintage was my first vintage out here. What am I doing? Nothing's ever going to get ripe. Followed by 2011, right? I mean, they were these were early days. So that's when I was putting in my vine orders for 2012 and going, okay, I'm thinking this to myself, okay, is Dolcetto really, really the right choice? You haven't been able to ripen Pinot Noir the whole time you've worked here. What do you think? I was like, okay, come on, research, global warming. This makes sense. This doesn't make sense this year as I'm placing the vine orders, but it, it makes sense. It can make sense. Let's try it. Um, we also, at that point, I had fallen in love with Riesling during my time in Australia. I love the purity of it. And so John agreed to let me plant some Riesling as well. Um, he really loved Pinot Blanc, which I, I hadn't really had a Pinot Blanc that inspired me. And so I, so I said, well, okay. Everybody's got to plant something that they just love. And, but for the most part, uh, the Lowers really left it up to me and um, the expertise that I came with and, and allowed me to really plant the clones and choose the rootstocks that I, that I thought would do best on this site. And um, all I can say is I, I gave it the best shot I could and um, you know, time will tell. So that's, that's kind of how the, the vineyard development story has been. And, and the same was true for the 2019 plantings. Uh, different, different set of clones, that's been a little bit more um, adventurous. We, we, I stuck with pretty much tried and true clonal material for our plantings. We, we kind of have, we, I, I define them by the north property and the south property. The south property being the original property that, that I came upon and the Lowers owned initially. And so for the Chardonnay clones, we did 95, 76, um, uh, a little 96. And then Pinot Noir clones pretty much stuck to Pomard. Uh, a little triple seven because there was a little bit of that planted. The original plantings are 115 and 113, um, but really kind of good, solid choices, right? Now, when it came to establish this, we're talking quite a few years later, this was just fall, um, we decided to get a little bit more adventurous and to do some suitcase clones. And so we've got some of the AS2, we've got Quarry, we've got Swan. We've decided to also replicate some of the plantings that we have on the South property. So um, I wanted to see, we've got an old vine field blend of Chardonnay that is Winty, Espagette, uh, 76, some 95, some different California clones. Those are the only ones I've been able to like figure out what we have. and so. I wanted to mirror that at a higher elevation. And so we've got that going on the northwest corner. So we've got some Winty, we've got some Espaget in there. Espaget, there's still a few different ways I've heard that. And also went ahead and kind of duplicated the 115 clone that we have in our older Pinot Noir plantings as a way to give a, a higher elevational staggered ripeness. I really wanted to think about planting this vineyard I know it's a light 850 feet in the old Amity Hills of Oregon, but I really was thinking of 
the climate. And I wanted to be able to plant something that would be relevant in a warmer environment in the future. And so I looked towards later ripening clones and um, we, we have started a sparkling program. And so I do have a, a fallback in case it, um, because there will still be years where it's gonna be cold and it is still going to be challenging. But um, so we've, we've got one foot in this across the line, I would say for, for having some later ripening. It's definitely a later ripening site and, and we planted some later ripening clones. So the idea is not for next year, five years, but really for the future. I wanted to set up a, a heritage vineyard as best as I could. So. You mentioned when you came here you and you were in the basement, you knew that the, the eventual plan was not to be in the basement forever. So, so tell me about the, the development of that side of, the, of this winery. And I know it's not, not the first iteration of wineries, as you mentioned, that, that was going to be built here. But tell me about what you were going for here and about what this is now allowing you to do with your wines. Yeah. Well, so we, John and I started touring different wineries and of course I had worked in some really, really nice wineries over the years. Um, I think my favorite winery, Penrash, I just, just, I just really, really loved it. I, I think the thing that I really liked about it, one of the things was the open, well-lit cellar. I really, really liked that, and it's something I've carried through. Um, and just little tricks, like, uh, drain covers that you can slip hoses through, power everywhere. Um, so I definitely had picked up on a few things. And originally, we were just working off of what we could do within the 20-acre estate. Mm -hmm. And um, we only had, unless we wanted to rip up vines, we only had one little place to build a winery. And at that point, we were looking at building a 10,000 case facility, and the only way we could do it was to go down, which worked, because we were looking at a, a bi-level production facility, so we could do some gravity feeding, um, probably have some caves that went under. And so we designed a gorgeous winery and that process took about eight months um, we worked very hard on that and I think it was like three weeks probably a month probably six weeks really before we were set to break ground we got the first bid for the concrete and it blew the whole budget of the whole thing that wasn't even the shell the concrete alone blew our entire budget. Not for the tasting room, not for the top of the winery, nothing. It was the concrete alone. And I think at that point, oh, it was crushing. It was crushing. Not only had we lost essentially a year in planning and development and just like sheer energy of thinking about like every single little detail, but then also being like, well, what do we do now? Where do we build? How can we really do this? And, um, and so 
So I feel like we all just kind of like went into our holes and like cried for a while. Well, we thought, oh, how do we grow this business if we, if we can't really build a winery on site that isn't going to cost like $10 million? And um, we, for a long time, had had an eye on the property that was just to the north, which is where we are today. And um, I had already, like a year or two prior, did a full cost analysis of like the, the, the vineyard worth and and what I thought the homes were worth on site and had kind of come up with uh, what we thought we I think we had actually even approached the owners but our pricing was not what they were interested in but um, we decided just to try again and things had changed in their lives and they wanted to sell. And so uh, the Lowers were able to purchase this additional 20 acres, which used to be owned by the same owners, which was such a cool thing to find out when I did, because I was in charge of the, uh, well, I don't know if I was in charge, I just did it. Um, finding like all the, all the well logs for our, our water rights and everything like that. And it was like, wow, we're bringing these properties back together. This is so cool. Um, and so we acquired this property and there was an existing home, which is now the Tate. Well, there was an existing home, which has now been renovated and turned into a gorgeous tasting room. Um, the bedrooms are now our offices and there was just a perfect flat spot. I didn't even have to knock down any trees. Um, and we had looked at a few wineries that weren't gravity fed. And one of the things that really struck me is that being in a, in a gravity fed winery, you have to invest a lot more in tanks because you can't always push your wines back up if you're doing any filtration. I had, I had, I had started to like really, really put together my budget for equipment and I was just like wow I've got to have blending tanks down below and and so I, I guess maybe too I was trying to make myself feel better about not having like wine caves because of course that's like a dream to be able to have like a wine cave but there were um, just so many wonderful uh, practical aspects with with building a, a flat open very um, uh, flexible workspace. And, and, and it's a very straightforward building. And so from a design point of view, um, it was just a lot easier to build because it was, it's essentially just a big rectangle. Um, I had already done a lot of those, those like the deep thought that you do when you're developing or designing a winery about where the barrels go and which direction and how to do that. So in, in one way it was like, you're like in college and you're writing a paper and like your computer crashes. Well, it's always easier to write the second time, right? <laughs> you've already, you've kind of already done the work. And so, this building went up so fast. It was great. We built it in under a year. Um, it was not one of those nightmare situations where I don't have my tanks and the fruit is coming. <sighs> Our contractors were so awesome. I got to move like my empty barrels up here like in June. I think it was June, maybe July. 
Um, I was bringing tanks in. I had everything set up like a month before harvest even started. Of course, there's still things you got to figure out because it's still a new building. But um, and, and I think one of the concessions to not having like a super cool gravity fed winery were that it was much more economical. It's probably more functional than that building would have been. It's twice as big. And um, also, I, 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 the way I set it up, why I have tanks I can use for fermentation and those same tanks I use for blending. And so it's just a really efficient winery and um, maybe there was a little bit more room in the budget for windows. So there's windows everywhere. <laughs> so that was great. That was a great concession. So it's to be able to work in a in an open air because I mean really I've been making wine outside for seven years. I, I need sunlight. I need to be outside. Otherwise I'm gonna turn into, you know, a cranky old winemaker. So <laughs> Mm -hmm. What about the wines themselves? Oh, you, uh, you mentioned the ability now to experiment more and to explore more and to find new, new kind of new things to do. One of the things that John and Kathy talked about was your, your blending expertise. So tell me about how your winemaking style has evolved along with the space and, and how you would define your winemaking philosophy. Well, it was very difficult to make wine outside. We couldn't even do punch downs in the building. And so, so much of my physical energy, my mental energy, my bandwidth was just to make sound wine. And, and a lot of the really um, maybe more uh, craftful avenues I was not willing to explore because really also the other part of this is being a fledgling winery who is sending people to a porta potty to use the bathroom. We really had to prove ourselves that really nice wine could be made in this place. And so I played it very, very safe. Um, I inherited a lot of funk in that winery too. So I think the great thing about the 2010 and 2011 vintages were that I was able to get rid of most of my barrels. I mean, I, there wasn't even a pressure washer to wash barrels. And so there was a lot of just inherent, uh, unfriendly microbial activity. And I really had to work really hard to purge that. Now, in 2018, when we moved into this winery, um, it was still, still a new winery, right? It's, 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 it's big, it's open, it's airy, it's wonderful, but it's still like, okay, I'm in a new space. And so it's like I'm relearning how to make wine. All I wanted to do was take my ferments outside the first vintage because they got so warm. My ferments are so much warmer than I've ever, ever experienced. And a lot of my winemaking style has been a little bit more conservative with the use of mostly um, non-saccharomyces, but still commercial non-saccharomyces yeast. I've, I have always really, really appreciated um, wines that have more, uh, more natural tendencies, but I didn't really feel like 
it was the right time or place working in that really, really challenging environment from challenging from all levels, all angles. And so um, I was very, I was very early to adopt some of the first non-saccharomyces commercial strains as a way to kind of do a little bit more interesting work, um, but still very controlled because I really, really ran into a lot of problems every time I would veer off of doing some more conventional rip and tip winemaking. Um, I'd get stuck ferments, I'd get VA, I'd get Brett. Um, the results were not great. And so I had to, and I could because I knew how to just keep that line. And, um, and so that's kind of where I've been. And I think that a lot of the ways that I learned how to make wine were very reactionary, both in terms of microbes and in reaction to temperature, right? And so I liked commercial yeast because they burned a little hotter because my ferments were really cold because this is the Eola Amity Hills and I'm making wine outside at 750 feet in October and November. So if I didn't run with commercial yeast, things got really bad really fast. And so um, a lot of the ways that I was making wine, I mean, I have a reason I was making wine that way. And so now my first vintage, 2018, Oh, I did so much post-fermentation maceration because my ferments were over in like 10 days because I'm inside. Um, I, got, I got exhaust fans. Well, we had exhaust fans already, but I had timers set so I could pretty much just open everything up at midnight and run the fans until six. I wanted to open up all the doors, but that wasn't, we couldn't do that because of all the, you know, outside everything. And um, I just am like, okay, okay, okay. I need these ferments to be longer. I need them cooler. I'm an aromatically driven winemaker. And so I really like perfume in my wines, um, white wines as well as the red wines. And so 2018, I, we just bottled those wines. And they are, the site's still there. I, I would say from like, um, like winemaking philosophy, I generally don't like to add things like tannin or acid. I don't really want to change the character of the vintage. Um, it's, it's not something I go into thinking, okay, everything's gotta be like 3.2 when it comes in and if it's not, I'm gonna add acid until it is. Um, I really like to have that, the story of the vintage told and I think that comes through texture and acid and to some extent alcohol and so I really like to embrace that vintage variation I think it's because I'm a farmer at heart and each vintage is so unique why would I want to hide that um, with that said I do want to make consistently good wines and um, so now, uh, so 2018 was the first vintage in this winery. I found that my ferments were way too fast. And so I did much more post-fermentation maceration than I had ever done before and was just really overjoyed. Um, the textures were great. Um, it was kind of a really chewy tannic vintage. And so I was really pleased with those results. Um, and then 2019 rolls along because I was thinking, okay, well, maybe this is the time I can finally start using uh, less, if not 
stop using uh, commercial yeast on all my ferments. I had already started with my Chardonnay with success and a few lots here and there. I've got different ways I do indigenous yeast. Um, either I, I let it run wild, as I call it, or I do um, a buildup of the, like the pays de cuve, but um, so I've got different trials going with indigenous yeast, because um, that's like how I do. Um, <laughs> and um, got to try it a lot before I commit. Um, and so now that we're in the building, I'm, I'm specifically finding that my ferments are faster and they're too hot. And so probably the biggest change that I've made is using more whole cluster. Um, because I get longer ferments, I get beautiful lifted aromatics. Um, it's nothing that I could ever, I had never really felt comfortable doing down in the basement outside because there's still a lot of sugar when you, when you press out with whole cluster, or at least there can be, and I had no way to warm up tanks. Most of it was happening in November and it was outside. And so that's just, that's just like an example of, of like, okay, this works in this situation. This does not work in that situation. And so now this is just opening up the possibilities of things that I can do. And so I'm getting, and it's clean. Um, I feel like I've got a great uh, uh, mix of microorganisms. It's really a, a clean slate, if you will. And so, um, I've, I'm really, really excited for this vintage. Last vintage was really, really challenging. There was a lot of, um, the fruit was compromised out in the vineyard. So then I'm just like, oh, this isn't the year to do that. <laughs> no, maybe this isn't the year, but I still did, but I still did. And I'm very, very happy with the results, which let me know that even in a really challenging year, I could still run a lot of whole cluster. I could still start really, really, really trying to use more indigenous yeast. And I'm really happy with the results. And that was, that was last year, which was, which was tough, which was tough going. And so, one of the other things that I, it seems completely natural is the grape growing. And so the Lowers have really, really let me just run with it. And uh, we've, we're, we've been farming to live standards since day one, but we're finally gonna get our certification. Um, but we've got all these different wildflower plots going right now, uh, ways to connect our ecological conservation area. We've returned to a no-till system in our established vineyard. I'm really going for biodiversity. Um, I'm really inspired by the work other people are doing here in Oregon and elsewhere. Um, really, really thinking deeply about everything that's happening underground wells above. And, and for me, um, that goes hand in hand with the winemaking because I feel like through softer practices and more by increasing biodiversity of plants and species, we are gonna have a more robust and diverse uh, yeast and bacterial population that will come into the winery, which makes me feel more, even more comfortable running with non-commercial yeasts, as, as an example. And so they go totally hand in hand, and it comes with finally kind of being at a point in this growth and development phase where we can finally just take a step back and I can just really start focusing on the grape growing and winemaking more so than I've ever had the opportunity to do because it's just been like, go, 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 go. And so I think that having, um, being in a, an actual winery 
I'm needing to remind myself just how much is possible and, and how much I really can do and how I, now it's time I, I made, I made wine first. I made solid wine second. Um, I made interesting, I would say site specific and varietal specific wine before. And now it's my time to make wines that have depth and complexity and are more interesting. And I can now. So I think that is the direction of, of me as a winemaker and having the ability to, to do it. So that's the, that's the trajectory, really. As an example of that, tell us about the, your innovation series. Oh, oh, innovation series. Well, that's great because, so I suppose it comes from maybe the point of being a little bit more um, conservative when figuring out what wines we're going to bring to the to our portfolio. And so it's I'm I'm just not the kind of winemaker who's like let's just make this wine where. How's that, you know, how's, how's that gonna fit in the lineup? Um, where do I source the fruit every year? You know, it just goes on and on and on about like, okay, does this make sense? And at the end of the day, I'll always be like, no, 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 that just doesn't really make sense. Um, but the innovation series came about because I'd always wanted to make an orange wine. But it was like, what? That's not like, that's like the people who drink well, I don't know who really drinks our wine anymore, but it seemed like it wasn't just the, the right market for this kind of classically branded, varietally classic bread, right? So I was like, how do I make an orange wine? How does this even make sense? I think I wanted to make an orange wine in 2011, and um, maybe 12. And, and then as, as the years have gone on, I've just wanted to do some different things. And this goes with the experimental side of being able to try things, right? To, 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 keep, to, to, to keep progressing forward, maybe in a maybe like kind of controlled manner, right? So I try it on some wines. And so I'm always experimenting. I've got oh, so many trials going on so many different levels, every single vintage, because I'm, I, I came from a research and development. I, it's just what I do. And so some of these wines were just really, really great. I'm like, gosh, it would be great to be able to like bottle these separately, but how does that make any sense, right? How does that really even make any sense? And, um, and I had just this, this idea of like, Oh, I don't want to do a second label for the brand, but how do we how do we just do how do we showcase that as a a kind of classically branded winery that we one I get to participate in the amazing amount of creativity that is happening in the Oregon wine industry that I as a winemaker get to do the fun stuff right there's that there's also of how can we introduce some of these really interesting styles to maybe a broader base who's looking for things that are maybe just like a little bit more classic Pinot Noir Chardonnay so how can we introduce people to some of these like you know, zeitgeisty wines. Um, and then it also came from this, this idea of wanting to put original artwork on bottles to go with the idea that these are just 
one-of-a-kind wines with one-of-a-kind artwork and I don't really have to worry about fitting them in the wine lineup forever and ever and ever and then the distributors aren't gonna bother me about it again it's just I get to be really really free and really creative and I and it's a way to explore different techniques without shifting our house style into like a really hard gear that may or may not work so it's really it really is just we thought about the name, we toyed around with a few different names, and at the end of the day, it came to innovation as a way to keep moving forward, progressing, doing better work as, as a winemaker, and as a way to share that. So that's really where it came from. Um, and, and, and the Lowers, they're just such great people. They've got an adventurous spirit, and they've really come to trust me and the decisions that I've made for, for them and they know that everything I do, I do with care and with deep consideration, and so I wasn't trying to lead them off a cliff <laughs> with this idea of creating all these little crazy wines. Um, and, and in so much, they let me do the, the very first series with my, my little boy's artwork. And it's all kind of abstract and crazy, and. And, and beautiful and, and it was a nice chance for my husband and I to reconnect because he's our graphic designer. He does, he studied fine art and now he does graphic design for a number of different industries, but definitely he was our very first designer who, who worked together with all of us. And so as a way to kind of um, do a little bit of rebranding and, and express kind of the creative, innovative side of who we are and what we're doing and be able to show that to people as well. So that's really how it came about because I wanted to make an orange wine and it was like, how do I do that? So we launched this whole new concept and it's always a bit of a reveal where I don't tell anybody what we're doing. Well, I talked to John and Kathy about it first, but it's, um, it's always kind of a secret and an unveil to the crew. Um, and so I've got two wines that I'm doing this year, and it's great. Um, I, I handle all the, the labeling and the packaging and put together the art and um, the color schemes and everything like that. So it's, it's, um, it's really fun for me that way too because I get to do a, a physical, tangible, artistic side, and it is nice to work with my husband a little bit to get to do that too, so yeah. You've mentioned a number of times uh, sort of the, the, the work-life issues of getting into wine and being a flying winemaker and, and, and yeah. trying to find a place where you and your husband are both happy. And uh, I'm curious, uh, obviously since we started the archive, there are more and more female winemakers in the industry, but you're still uh, in, the, in the minority. You worked with Louisa Ponzi, you worked with Lynn Pinarash, you worked with some of the pioneers of, of, of uh, female uh, winemaking here. Tell me about finding that work-life balance and sort of raising family along with the business uh, at the same time. Hmm. Well, to, to, just to, to add to the female winemakers that I've worked under at Ilumba, I also worked for Louisa Rose. And I sought out working for female winemakers because I wanted to see how it was done. That's not what I learned from them. Those three people are so entirely different. Um, so all I learned was that people were different. Um, but still some very, very brilliant winemakers, each in their own way. 
know, work-life balance. I don't think I don't think anybody has the answer. It's difficult. It's very difficult. Um, I think that I owe a lot of my success to my partner. Um, he's been incredibly supportive, and especially during this pandemic. Um, he is the primary caregiver for our young children so that I can follow my dreams. And uh, without his support, I wouldn't really be able to do this at all. And, um, and I think that <laughs> the work-life balance is something that I think a lot of women think about more, right? I mean, traditionally, it's the women that, that take the primary role. Um, and and, and uh, classically, lot, not a lot of men were even asked that question. So I think it's something that we talk about more just because that was kind of the default, right? And I think that there's something almost a little uncomfortable about talking about it, especially when you are in a man's world, right? Like sometimes you don't even want to talk about that. You, a lot of men go throughout their careers without even mentioning their families, right? And so it's, 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 it can be a very touchy and sensitive subject. And there's so much happening in the world right now. And I think that people are waking up to the realities and understanding these like inherent biases and sexism and and all of that and I think that um, my experience in Australia was eye-opening because I found uh, it was it was pretty sexist but it was blatant it was in your face so it was almost easier to deal with whereas in the states um, maybe it's more subversive you, you just don't get a call back right I mean Maybe, maybe some. Maybe you don't get a promotion. You know, there are all these kind of behind-the-scenes things that maybe you're never even aware of. Whereas some of my experiences in Australia, it was just like you know, really in your face. Like, I, I definitely remember quite a few experiences where I, I, I ran, and got in a like pushing contest to like drive a forklift. Right? Like we were just like, no. But I've always wanted to play with the boys. <laughs> I've always wanted all the things, not only I wanted to play, just the things that I have found interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in, in the foothills of California and I snowboarded. Um, I used to skate half pipe. I've always just needed to assert myself in, in a place where maybe I was the only woman or female there. And so it's something that I think I've learned just by, or ha learned how to deal with in a way, in a way um, to, to assert myself in, in, in situations where I'm, I'm a minority. Um, and then finding the, the work-life balance, um, I think it's just difficult. I have young children, which makes it even more difficult. Um, but I think for as difficult as it is, it 
my family really gives me my a good part of my drive. Um, like when I'm working those really long hours during harvest, and um, and I'm I'm like on the verge of exhaustion, or I'm 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 just gone, or I, or I, I can't give it. I think you know, if I'm here, I better be doing something. I better be doing something great. I better be. I better be killing it, right? Because they're all hold, holding it down for me at home. So I better be here doing something with intention and something that's important. And so I think that if anything, having a family um, makes me just really, really driven because I realize that how much they sacrifice for me to do what I do. And so I make my time worth it. And, um, and that's something that I, I had no idea would happen at all. <laughs> you don't know these things before you're a parent. So the uh, life balance, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant balance. It's, and it changes all the time. It changes, and it's gonna get easier once they get older. Uh-huh, yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm sure, no doubt, no doubt. I've, I've heard, I've heard it gets so much easier when they're teenagers. So, yeah, yeah. So what advice would you have for young women who wanted to follow in your footsteps? Oh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, I did things that made sense for me. I think Oregon is unique in that you don't always have to come loaded up with degrees. There's like, you can intern and you can learn a lot and you can learn how to make really, really great wine without having um, the credentials to do so. Mm -hmm. And there's avenues for getting into the industry. It's just because it's still such a relatively young, open industry. Um, I did not feel like that was gonna be, I didn't feel like, oh, I didn't know where I was gonna work. I had no idea Oregon would be so open and inviting. Um, I had really planned of going into like the cutthroat industry in probably somewhere in California or maybe internationally and working for some of like the bigger, flashier wineries. And so I think my advice, I would need to ask a lot of questions, like what, what their goals are, right? I think depending on where you want to work in the world, I think depending on whether or not you want to focus on grape growing or winemaking, um, I, think it's, I think it's all relative. And so, yeah, I'm not gonna give any advice. <laughs> not, no blanket statements from me on that one. It's just a little, it's a big, big wine world out there. So you mentioned earlier that we're in the in the midst of, of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we were three-ish months into this now and uh, obviously uh, reopening and dealing slowly <laughs> and dealing with all the issues with that. Yeah. Tell me about what COVID-19, how it affected your day-to-day -day business and, and maybe how it affected sort of the future as you see yourself and, and Bryn Mawr. Yeah, it's quite an extraordinary time. Yeah. Um, well, my role here is very multifaceted and, and there's so many different facets of this business. So from the sales side, well, all of our distribution going to restaurants just 
stopped. Um, we, we were able to have a really, really wonderful outpouring of support by our local fans, our, our national fans, through just online sales. And so that was a, a really pleasant surprise to see really a, an outpouring of support is how it felt mm -hmm. for people. We, we ran some great sales, um, but we, we were able to just keep up with our direct-to-consumer sales through lot through quite a bit of this. Um, of course, our, our tasting room has been closed, and so the, that that whole avenue is just we've, we've re now just reopened, and we're appointment only, and we're definitely at diminished capacity by a long shot. And so, from the sales side, it has been just like okay what's going to happen and then we we started to see an uptick in some of our uh retail like uh, wine shop mm -hmm. grocery sales um as well as just some different online platforms for selling the wine so we well the lights are still on so <laughs> so we've been we've been, we have been moving wine so that's been wonderful um from a grape growing perspective Vines don't care. So that has been a challenge. Um, the crews have worked tirelessly through all of this. Um, the way most of the vineyard work is done is a lot of times everybody's working their own row anyways or, or working panels apart. And so the nature of some of the vineyard work is socially distant. So that's a real positive. Um, but of course, I mean, there's all, as everyone is really, really, I feel becoming aware of a lot of the um, economical um, and, and, yeah, I mean, it's just so loaded, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot that's going on with our society right now. And it's this pandemic, of course, is shining light on all the inequities that exist within our society. And um, I've been really, really thankful for all the vineyard crews who, who have really, really done an incredible job keeping up through this, mm -hmm. keeping up through this and um, watching what, a lot of people are, are going through because it's a scary time too. It's a really scary time, and and knowing that some of them are coming from communities that are underserved and that they they stand the risk of being even more vulnerable, and yet they are part of the front line essential workers that need to keep going. So, just more respect, even more respect than I already had for mm -hmm. the the vineyard crews going through all of this at the same time. And so um, from a winemaking perspective, like the wine doesn't care. Um, when, I think when the state decided to close schools, that's when it got real for me because I have a son who was in his first year of kindergarten and I'm so thankful my husband was just transitioning to working from home and doing graphic design remotely anyways. I mean, I feel so fortunate for that. I mean, who, I, it's, thank you. I, I just, that was, whew, we, we've been really, really fortunate. And so um, at that time, 
my seller assistant and I were splitting shifts, right? Like I would come in in the morning or she would come in in the morning um, and then I'd get here after lunch and work late. And then so we, we kind of did this shift work for about a month and then it was like I was working until eight at night. I was coming in on the weekends. I was getting backed up with wine work. And there was just a certain point after about a month, maybe maybe six weeks, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is, this is not working. Okay, let's find a new way to do things. And so um, the, the closure of the schools and the um, emergency I'm since we're a, an essential industry and I'm an essential worker I do have a permission slip to send our children to daycare and that is what we have been doing um, for our youngest son and and that's been just uh, we couldn't do it without that because my husband is still trying to work um, so so that the, the life work balance who I mean it's at a head right now this is this is this is this is as tough as it's ever gonna be um, so that it's it's been challenging it's been that we've never I've never worked harder it's never been more stressful just trying to keep up with all the lines um, all the different logistical challenges between bottling and really trying to like keep life that is not work still like mm -hmm. you know, getting everyone fed and <laughs> to bed at a reasonable time just like all the boring mundane details of having like a life mm -hmm. so it has been really tough and I feel so fortunate that the Lauer family has made it um, possible for none of us to go when we didn't, none of us were furloughed. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any, any major disruptions in, 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 th in that, so we didn't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. um, and also it was just like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm only working a half day here, trying to hold it down, because they're a family as well, and they know, they understand. And I, so I feel really, really fortunate for them being flexible and responsive to this like whole new crazy dynamic. Um, and I also feel so, so lucky that my own personal family dynamics just played out the way they did. Mm -hmm. And, um, but from more of a, just a, a work winery uh, perspective, the biggest change has been through the supply chains. Uh, everything just stopped. Mm -hmm. My sparkling glass, I mean, it started with a, a strike. We all forgot about that. Um, and then all the factories shut down and then none of the ports were open. And so my sparkling wine, we just bottled. It's still sitting over there. It just was bottled because I couldn't get the glass. Um, when, when, we, when we ran our sparkling, our force carbonated sparkling run, I couldn't get crown caps. Like it, it, it was kind of like, Toilet paper, right? Like you never think certain things that are just so easy to come by. I mean, they're just beer caps, essentially. I just couldn't get them because, I, I, okay, I could get from some from Switzerland, but the, it was gonna cost more to air freight them than it would to, to have them, the product delivered. So, 
Um, and then, so between my capsules, my screw caps, all the, the glass, I've had to break everything up. And it's been like checking in weekly with my suppliers, like, are we there yet? Are they coming? And so that's been really stressful because all of this stuff affects not just me and our timelines, but everyone else. I have to switch around bottling dates and all of their clients. And, and we, we use filtration services, and so I have to move everything around. And it's, it's been a logistical nightmare. Um, but I will say the positive things that have happened is this whole pandemic has caused so many people forced them to rethink the way they do things. Personally, business, you name it. I think everyone's been reflecting, or at least they should be. And when it came to our, our capsules, I was just like, okay, why, why is our entire bottling run waiting? Uh, the wine is, is in tank. Is this detrimental to the wine? Because we're waiting for these tin little covers to come. Is this really important? Um, well, no. <laughs> and, and so I just really started thinking about, as a business, who we want to be. And we're definitely making moves towards becoming more sustainable. And I'm like, gosh, you know, these are open pit mine somewhere in Indonesia. They're manufactured in France. They're stamped in Canada. I mean, and then they're, 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 they're coming on an airplane to get here in time for bottling. This is so wasteful. This has such a heavy carbon footprint and no one has rats in their cellars anymore. They're not made of lead. These are just decorative. Mm -hmm. Why is this important? And they're expensive. And they're expensive. Um, so why are we doing this? And so John and I sat down and I just, you know, went off probably on a philosophical point and then wrapped it up with the, the financials. <laughs> like, this doesn't really make sense. What if we do wax? Here's the cost. In and out, lading, here, here it all is. And we decided just, just forgo tin. So we, um, I think this pandemic, because of the logistical challenges and the disruption in supply chain, has made us stop, mm -hmm. reconsider the things we do, and, and, and think about who we want to be and how we can do things better. And one of those decisions was to forego tin capsules and we'll also be phasing out screw caps. Um, I feel a lot better with the technical cork options that are out there now. And so if anything, I think it's helped really um, propel many of our own internal sustainability goals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably the, the, the best thing to come out of this from a, a winemaking perspective. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel good about it. I feel good about taking the time to, to, to ask those questions and think those thoughts and, mm -hmm. and really move the needle in a more sustainable way. 
So what about as you look ahead for yourself and, and for the company? What, what, what do the next five, 10 years look like for, I know it's, all, it's a big ask right now, I know. What do you hope for? What do you, is there something you want to try? Is there a goal you have in mind? Purposefully, no. Because I'm like a bulldog when I get an idea in my head and I just go for it. And I'm really trying to be more open um, and be more, um, allow that um, uh, intuition to start to return now that I'm in like a safer place from a winemaking, grape growing uh, uh, business place mm -hmm. um, and allow the creativity to flow. I'm really looking forward to reconnecting to my, my wine knowledge. Uh, I've been so boots on the ground, one foot in front of the other, head in the dirt and digging with the rocks that like I have, I've, I haven't completely stopped, but like my wine appreciation knowledge has really uh, taken a back seat to this, the, the practical nature of, of, of growth and development of a winery, of a vineyard, a business, and frankly, family. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And um, I've been allowing myself some me time to like geek out about different wine regions and taste wines from different producers from all around the world. And so I'm, I'm, really, I'm really excited about that. And I'm, and I'm also really excited about some of the other things we have planned for the vineyard. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to working with these wines from these plantings that they're finally going on eight years old. 10 years old, they're finally getting there. Mm -hmm. uh, the roots are getting in there. The, the, uh, the, the quality is getting better. And I finally get to make wines from these great vines. And so, because they've been so young, they've just been, it's been very, very young fruit that I've been working with. So I'm, I'm really excited about getting to enjoy what we've been doing and to have the bandwidth to look at the big picture and be able to spitball ideas, big ideas um, about the business as a whole and what direction we want to go. And um, I'm excited about becoming um, more artistic and intuitive with my winemaking. And I'm looking forward to not using as many commercial products. I'm looking forward to doing better work in the vineyard. I'm excited to watch this business bloom. Um, and yeah, and I'm, I'm decidedly leaving myself open. Yeah. Purposely. Purpose. I like that. Yeah. Like that. So let's talk about the industry more in general for a second here. I'm curious what the what the Oregon wine industry, you mentioned how quaint it seemed to you when you started working at Ponzi. Uh, yeah. I'm curious about your kind of overall impressions of the industry as you started to, to learn about it and, and what the biggest changes you've seen from now, from then to now are. 
Well, being in the Ole Amity Hills, I feel like we are seeing a lot of outside investment from France, California, and elsewhere. I mean, I'm watching the excavators go to town on the other side of the fence line, and, and they're South African owners, mm -hmm. and they've got hundreds of acres around us. I remember just like our jaws dropping when Kendall Jackson purchased down the street, and um, and now we've got a lot more French and uh, French consultants in the valley, and so just the international um, appeal, I think, right, Comparatively, the mm -hmm. land prices are still quite low and people can purchase land here. And so there's a ton of vineyard development going on mm -hmm. um, for better, for worse, right? Um, I think that more of the world is starting to know about Oregon wine. Um, definitely is the case. Mm -hmm. I distinctly remember going down to California and having someone like in a tasting room be like, ah, oh, they make wine in Oregon. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. So you can definitely get caught in a little bubble. And then when you see international attention um, coming and all the recent press and the buzz about Oregon, um, it's clear that we are on the cusp of something big. I think the people who have been here have always known how great this place is and how special it is. And I think now the, uh, the world's going to know. So. so as you look ahead to the, to the next decade here in Oregon, what do you see? What, do you, what is it going to look like? And what do you hope for? And maybe what are you afraid of? I think people are going to start planting different varietals. I think, um, I, I get a sense that I think Chardonnay, um, we've invested in more Chardonnay. I think Chardonnay has a great place here. So I kind of foresee Oregon branching out in the most natural place, which of course is Chardonnay. So it's not like too wild of a thought, but I do really think that Oregon is going to become equally known for its Chardonnay as well as its Pinot Noir. Um, I also think sparkling. I think sparkling is also going to be the next new thing, maybe at the same time as Chardonnay. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I don't have my crystal ball with me right now. Um, and then I think there's such a creative spirit and a lot of people are interested in alternative varietals. I, I kind of see, and, and I think Oregon is kind of known for being quirky and experimental, and that so I can see the industry really also having just like a micro niche of, of experimental grape growers and winemakers, and I don't see that going away. And I think that is part of what makes Oregon so like unique is it's not cookie cutter. And we have a lot of smaller vineyards and some independently minded growers and winemakers. And so I kind of see it going in both directions at the same time. I think um, we'll see more Chardonnay. I think we'll see more sparkling. And I think maybe at the same time, but probably to a lesser degree, more and more exploration with different vineyard sites and different varietals and, and, and really, um, creative winemaking as well. So that's where I, I think things are going.
One last question for you. Okay. I'll get a little philosophical on you. Okay. What is the role of wine in society? Oh. Discussion. I think that when you bring people together with wine and a meal, I mean, you've got to always have food. You've got to always have food. So as far as what wine does and how it contributes to our society, it, it literally brings people to the table together. And it, it allows people to connect and to discuss. And I think more than any other beverage really just gets people to, 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 to share their own life experiences and um, is just the, the, the natural beverage of choice for philosophy. <laughs> it just, it, it, it's, it's almost necessary. It, it has a place, it has a place at the table for discussion. That's all the questions that I have for okay. you. Is there anything yeah. I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything I didn't, we didn't cover that we should have covered? Whew, I think we, I think we covered everything. <laughs> I don't know. I, I pretty much feel like it's all out there. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. That's what we want to have. That's good. That's yeah. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for okay. your time today, yeah. for, for your thoughts, and for helping, again, helping us set this up. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.